Can I assume that if you're listening to this, you're pretty liberal? If you are, how do you feel when you see Muslim women wearing hijabs, a veil, or a headscarf? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Assertive, independent, autonomous. Women in America for decades had been expected not to be assertive, independent, or autonomous. But in our world of far more liberated women, that is exactly what feminism today idealizes. Oh, it's a high standard, a fair measure by which the behavior of men and women is now held up as what's right and what's wrong. We're taking on toxic masculinity, for example. Feminism is challenging the oppressive old norms, and that's a very good thing. When it comes to women who choose to dress differently, whose sense of modesty and religious faith is different from prevailing norms, that feminist ideal often fails. I'm talking about Muslim women who wear hijabs, a veil, or a headscarf. Muslim women in America routinely encounter disapproval, if not hostility, in public and often deal with discrimination in the workplace. One might expect people on the right, Trumpists and culturally conservative men, to look down at traditionally dressed Muslim women. But judgmental biases by liberal American women are perhaps the more jarring and disappointing and perhaps surprising. Meanwhile, of course, the population of Muslim women continues to grow in our intentionally diverse immigrant welcoming country. That's a good thing, too. To shed light on this little-discussed reality, our guest today is Falgani A. Sheth, author of Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, just published by Oxford Press. Falgani Sheth, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Ah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Falgani Sheth is professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University. She's author of Toward a Political Philosophy of Race and co-editor of Race, Liberalism, and Economics, a former colonist for uh, Salon.com, where she wrote about race, national security, and politics. She's also written for public news outlets, including Alternate and Common Dreams. For the past 15 years, Sheth has served as co-organizer of the California Roundtable on Philosophy and Race, founded as a forum on philosophy, race, and related themes. Boy, that must be for interesting discussions. Well, again, thanks for being with us. The title of your book immediately made me think of an interview I did years ago with historian Woody Holton about his book called Unruly Americans. It was uh-huh. about yeah, really. It was about those working class farmers and other debtors, yeomen in the late eighteenth century. Uh, who were expected to pay back the people who lent the money to fight the War of Independence. (laughs) They fought for economic justice against the requirement that they pay back those who lent money with interest for the War of Independence. These unruly Americans led uh, the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. These early Americans threatened the norm, and they indeed had much to be angry at. So, how did you come up with the title Unruly Women? Is it something about uh, threatening the norm? Who are these women? Where did that title come from? 
Yeah, th thanks. What a great question. And yeah, I, I think there is a little bit of a connection to the uh, the unruly Americans title. I mean, I think, you know, years ago, I published a little piece on unruly Muslim women. And part of what I realized was that after, especially after 9-11, that there was, you know, there was a lot of kind of fear and attention um, about Muslims as we know in general. But, you know, whereas most of the hijackers on 9-11 were men, there was still this kind of extension of um, hostility towards Muslim women. And part of, I think, the idea was, how dare you? Um, how dare these women come into this country and veil? Either they're really oppressed by their husbands or fathers or brothers or uncles, or they're choosing to do this um, and they don't know any better. Ooh. But I thought that there was also a kind of defiance there, right, um, that was being received badly. So it's okay to be assertive, um, but you have to be assertive in the right way. <laughs> and so the problem was that I think there are a lot of American women, white American women, American feminists, who really kind of um, were also took issue with the fact that Muslim women wore the hijab um, or the niqab and that, you know, so they had a bunch of different reasons for why they took issue. And I think they just thought either these women were, were backwards and didn't know mm. better. They were, or they were being coerced and they needed to be liberated as in the famous member Barbara Bush radio speech supporting uh President Bush's uh, interest in invading Afghanistan, where the big logic was, yes, we have to free Afghan women. Mm. Um, or there was this like, well, you know, why are you doing this? You don't have to do this. And so I think there was this sense of if none of these are the answers, you know, they must just be doing it because they want to. And they just seem really defiant, but they weren't defiant in the, in the way that we're accustomed to thinking about good, assertive Define women. So that's why I use the title, but I also use it as a way of saying, actually, there's women of all kinds of different backgrounds who are misread as being unruly yeah. when they do things that other people don't approve of. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And I think more and more women and eventually we uh, knuckle dragging men are, you know, coming along and seeing that a little bit. And it's specifically the, the Hijab and the what was the other thing? Could you just tell us what those items of clothing are, just in case uh, you know people listen all across the country here, they may not know what that is. Sure, I mean, um, I'm using hijab just more generically, but it, it generally is um, a cloth that covers the hair uh, of someone who is observant as a Muslim, um, and the niqab is often something that covers the nose and the mouth and leaves you know the eyes. Um, open and unconcealed. Um, so those are the two general phrases. There are all, there are all kinds of different names for different variations of these sorts of scarves and coverings. Um, but those are the two major ones. I can imagine liberal American women seeing Muslim women in what they choose as culturally defined, modest, dressed, so they see them as oppressed because they may cover one's face and or head. In what ways does that allegedly liberal attitude perhaps unintentionally 
reinforced the old belief in the authority of American imperialism and American values? Oh, my goodness. What a great question. I try. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. That's really at the heart of my book, Um, you know, because part of what I trace is the way in which I think liberals who were really, you know, committed to liberalism. And I don't I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but those who were to mythology, you know, uh, to kind of principles of freedom and freedom of action and freedom of thought. Um, I think there is a sense that this is superior to all other kinds of practices. And so, you know, the way, I mean, we know this, we have a history. I mean, as long as human beings have been around and have encountered people from other communities and cultures, we're not very good (laughs) at welcoming people who are different. And so there's this sense that, well, our way is definitely superior to all these other ways. I mean, you know, just think about this in terms of settler colonialism in the U.S., right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Go ahead. And so I think there is that sense. It's like, well, you know, if they were really superior and intellectually uh, on top of it and rational, they wouldn't be doing this stuff. So it is a kind of imperial attitude that I, and that's exactly right, Bert. That's what I've tried to kind of capture to say that even though these women have often crossed oceans, the same attitude, which is like, I think a kind of colonial or an imperial attitude follows them here because we already have it. We already have the sense of superiority in the way that we act and behave as liberals. Mm. I, I will say up front, you're talking to a liberal here, and I hate nationalism. I really hate nationalism. And nationalism means we're better than you. And that's nuts. Yeah. Ugh, we could go into that. Treated, They're often treated with pity or disdain. They're pressured to conform to the liberal idea of independence, that superior attitude. These American Muslim women experience an everyday reality which you describe as excruciation. What do you mean? What, tell it, please spell that out for us. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you've really read the book there. Um, well, I mean, I think that this is, you know, this is not limited to Muslim women. <laughs> um, it's not limited to Muslim women of color. Um, I would actually argue that it's really, we see it perhaps in a way that's most familiar when we're thinking about African-American women Mm. and black women and the kind of expectations that they somehow need to conform to, um, you know, professional standards. And yet if, and when they do conform to certain professional standards that are set up by men and women who were their so-called superiors Mm -hmm. or even their equals, that, you know, they still don't get promoted. They still don't get treated with respect. And so the casual version of this is called between a rock and a hard spot, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's what I mean by excruciation. That you're, you're, it's this kind of space of impossible, impossibility, that no matter what you do, you are just not going to be either left alone to live as you like, or you're not going to be promoted, or you're going to be punished. And there are, there are, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? I'm not, there are, um, 
banal ways in which we see this, mm. such as not being promoted, but there are also really violent ways in which we see this. So, you know, as we have all been watching in horror over the last seven or eight years, you know, black women such as Sandra Bland, Marissa Alexander, who, you know, was trying to protect herself from an abusive uh, husband in Florida where stand your ground laws are very popular. Mm. She was not afforded that defense, even though it was a, you know, an ex-husband who had a history of violence and she didn't shoot him. She just shot into the house in order to try to keep him away. And they ended up putting her in prison for a long time. So even when she avails herself of laws and avenues that women who can defend themselves are supposed to, she gets punished. So that, to me, is, an, is a very violent example of excruciation. Equal justice under the law. Yeah, it's a nice, nice story. Gosh, I wish it were true. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of this uh, with the current Supreme Court composition, oh aren't we? God, yes. Unbelievable. Uh, tell us about, if you would please, about the judicial system's startling tendency to reject or minimize cases of religious discrimination in the workplace, which have been filed by Muslim uh, hijabis. How does the insistence on proper attire, proper attire, give me a, uh, excuse me, in the courtroom, <laughs> proper attire in the courtroom work against Muslim women in traditional dress, proper attire for them? How does the insistence on that proper attire in the courtroom work against Muslim women in traditional dress? I'm so glad that you asked that. So, yeah, I do have a chapter kind of committed, to, uh, devoted to that. Um, and so it's not just employment discrimination. Right. So this is a case um, of uh, Jinnah Muhammad, who in Michigan um, filed a small claims court case um, against a car rental company that she had used who wanted to charge her for damages um, that she, you know, thought were unjust. And so she went to small claims court to try to get her money back. And the judge in that case, um, Paul Parrock, uh, refused to hear her case unless she took off her niqab. Oh, my goodness. And the reason that he gave was, <laughs> well, I can't see your face and I need to see your face to see if you're lying. Now, mind you, this was not some life and death, you know, mobster case, right? This was a small claims case. But the other thing is, it's a very strange criteria, although it makes sense in liberalism that we want transparency. We want to be able to recognize right, other people. Like when you find somebody who's familiar, you, you trust them because you think, OK, well, they share some of my values, right? That this is a kind of commitment to transparency. Um, but we have all kinds of witnesses, as the ACLU has pointed out in a letter about that case, um, where, you know, transparency is not necessarily determined by seeing somebody's face. You have judges who are blind. You have witnesses in protection programs who testify on tape or behind, you know, uh, curtains. So it's not clear that you need to be able to see somebody's face in order to testify. And if anything has really proven this, it's been the last two years of COVID where masking, right, has True. been especially in courtrooms. And so suddenly the question of transparency and believability, credibility, doesn't really, 
become as big of a question, right, under COVID. How ironic. Um, but anyway, so Jenna Muhammad said, listen, Judge, I can't, um, I can't take this off in front of you. This is part of my religious mm-hmm. commitment. And the judge said, first of all, it's not a religious commitment. Uh, if you had oh, bail, really? that would be a religious commitment. And you know how I know that? I know that because I talked to Muslims. And that was a very strange exchange in the in the court transcripts. I remember reading that and just not getting it. And so I thought, okay, well, he's just being really condescending. Okay. And so she doubled down. She said, I'm not taking this off. It is a commitment. I, I will, I'm happy to take it off in front of a female judge. And he said, well, there are none. I'm dismissing your case. I refuse to hear it. So she doubled down and filed a suit. And this case went all the way up to the state Michigan State Court, Supreme Court, uh-huh. and they came down. I mean, they doubled down. They were just like, nope, sorry, judges have full. They literally expanded the law. It's called the Michigan Rules of Evidence, and it's Rule 6, 611, and they expanded it to say judges have absolute final unconditional authority over their courtrooms, including what witnesses can wear. So it was really, I was, it was, I just did not understand the incredible visceral response in this particular case. And I will tell you, it was not until well after I had written an article about it, um, about the transparency issue that I just described to you that I thought, okay, well, this is, you know, this is consistent with our, our commitment to liberalism that we want people to be transparent. But it wasn't until I finished that and I read a different case and it suddenly occurred to me that, and this, the other case was fascinating because it was about somebody and it turns out it was an uh, International House of Pancakes in, I believe in, in Missouri. But it took a long time for me to hunt down the details of this. But this was somebody who had been subject to incredible racial epithets in her workplace. She was a weight weight person, weight staff, and her colleagues and her supervisors just, they used the N-word, they used all kinds of things, and she wore a hijab. And, you know, and the judge in the case pretty much said, yeah, yeah, they used a lot of epithets, but it's not really racial discrimination. And by the way, if you wanted to file this as a case of racial employment discrimination, that's what you should have done. But it's too late. Deadlines passed. You pa- you filed it as a religious discrimination case. And that's when I realized, oh, religious discrimination cases, race, most cases, unless race is at issue explicitly, race is never named. And when I went back to that Michigan case, uh-huh. that's when I realized and I had to go do a lot of work to try to figure this out because race, you know, where they're considered race neutral. Right. That's mm. what justice apparently looks like yeah. <laughs> um, that this was an African-American Muslim woman. And that's why the judge came back and said, um, I know that you don't have to wear this as a commitment to your religion, that it's a culture thing, because he was not recognizing the legitimacy of her religion, given that she was African-American. Uh, my, my jaw drops. You can't see that on the radio, but that's just 
Oh my god! Uh, Isn't that amazing? It's crazy. And this was back in 2007. So the idea that courts are somehow, you know, fair and just, uh-huh. or people are realizing that they're not here in 2022, it's like, well, this was way back when. I mean, you know, uh, the, the kind of injustice that's there—that's been there a long, long time. And when you, you know, we started out and, and talking about. You know, a traditional American imperialism, settling the West, bringing our superior values. It sounds like that kind of stuff is alive and well in our court system. And, uh, you know, like as if there's some correct neutral. And the fact that you're right. I mean, sometimes judges are physically blind. Well, it happens. Uh, the, The notion of justice I got if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. This sub, uh, this show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Falgani Sheth, author of Unruly Women: Race, Neo-Colonialism, and the Hijab. Boy, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of shocking, really, if you're not uh, there to see it yourself and to experience it. I mean, most of us, you know, white people, don't have these experiences in the courts. But I can just imagine, and I think about. You know, back in the in the late '60s, early '70s, when the Panthers were coming to be, and and black women had been, you know, expected to, and men too, to fry their hair, basically, you know, to do that painful lie stuff on there, to fit in with the you know dominant culture. Thank goodness, finally, you know, there was the Afros, and and now people are you know celebrating who they are and what their culture is. And yet, this is yet another area, this, uh, you know, Muslim women, uh, it's it's still a bridge yet to cross. And we talk about justice in the courts. There have been many disturbing incidents of hijabis being harassed, denigrated, and worse by police officers, prison guards, and, of course, judges that you told us about. Uh, so how is the rule of law demonstrated to be inconsistent and arbitrary? Oh, wow. Another <laughs> intense question, Bert. Oh, you can handle um, it. <laughs> I mean, I think, well, you know, I, I have to say it, it, it takes a lot to unpack it because I think we all want to really take refuge in the idea that objective adherence to law is going to protect us. And, you know, as you pointed out, you know, for a lot of groups who were not white, African-Americans in this country, certainly immigrants, we've seen a lot of that over the last uh, six, seven years. But even before that, um, you know, laws are not necessarily used to protect. They're often used to castigate and criminalize. And I think, you know, I think it's it's actually much more profound than just being arbitrary about this stuff. So, you know, we saw this in uh, Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, um, the uh, the case that overturned Roe versus Wade, as unfortunately it's known as now. But this idea where, you know, Clarence Thomas is writing about this um Alito is who's got the majority opinion there. Mm. You know, he points out that. Abortion was always criminalized back in in when, you know, we had colonial um, when we had colonies. And while he may be right, 
the thing that doesn't get mentioned is that women were not considered full-fledged citizens in their own standing. That matters. That matters. So it's so technically, even if this is a correct statement, it's in unjust. And so the big question is, how do you move from deductive reasoning, right, and saying, well, if A, then B, if mm-hmm. B, then C, if A, then C, to kind of thinking about what the underlying norms are that were that need to be diff- different, right? Original intent mm. often just means that somehow we should be standing in the same place as our as the predecessors did 300 years ago. And the world moves, the world shifts, we have different kinds of understandings. And so I think that's part of the problem is that while judges are lawyers and lawyers are trained often in a very uniform and systematic way in law schools, they're not really given a training that talks about history and how to interpret history. Oh. That Because it's, you know, it's often based on either precedent, which is not happening in this case, right? Very decisive. But um, but we don't necessarily have a case to think about. You know, we don't have a context or lawyers don't anyway to think about structural injustice. And that's, you know, there is a group of lawyers who are legal scholars who've been pretty great at this stuff over the last 30 years. You might have heard of them because they're, they've been in the news recently. They're critical race theorists. <clears throat> yes. And they're the ones who talk about structural injustice they're the ones who talk about how whiteness becomes a form of property cheryl harris who was a law professor who wrote a brilliant piece about whiteness as a form of property which explains why many black people who could pass as white would do so even though they ran the risk of being arrested as fraudulent right because we're, we're not supposed to impersonate people that we're not so it's really complex in that way. And so what she writes about is how whiteness is a form of property, how whiteness gives you the ability to gain sympathy, gain credit, gain you know generosity from the people that you stand in front of. It allows you to get a job in a department store, as her grandmother did in the 1950s, as a black woman passing as white, even though that was a very stressful situation. And so, you know, so when we talk about how the law is objective, what we don't understand is that it's objective to a certain degree, but it tends to favor those who already have cultural capital, those who already Mm. have a lot of political and legal standing. And if you don't have political and legal standing, the law is most likely often not your friend. (laughs) Yeah, that is for sure. And oh, again, the the system of justice, it's uh it it is it's arbitrary and racist really in in the background and you know, the history of which particular values are carried forward and used as the standard now. Uh it's it, there's always work to do to increase real justice in America. It always has been. Why do you, and talk about whiteness, why do you think some Americans feel such a strong aversion to seeing a woman wearing a hijab, but have no such disapproval of Catholic nuns who wear habits or Jewish Orthodox women who wear wigs or headscarves? How much of it is specific disapproval of non-Western practices of the world's Muslim cultures, of which there's a lot? 
I mean, it's, it, I don't know if that's the majority of the world, but it's a huge minority anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, Bert. I mean, I think that's a big part of it, that, that you know, we are accustomed to seeing nuns wearing habits and Jewish Orthodox women who either wear wigs or cover their hair in a certain way. But these are considered kind of a core part of Judeo-Christian cultural norms. And I think, but I think the other counterpart, the counterpart of that is that, again, we um, have a really difficult time with change. We have a really difficult time with the unfamiliar. And so there is a sense of, well, why are these people doing what they're doing? And they're often, right, dark skinned. So, for example, um, European or American, white American women who convert to Islam report very positive responses, <laughs> much more positive than women of color or black women mm-hmm. who are visibly Muslim. Um, and I think the third reason is because, you know, Islam has become a pretty easy scapegoat over certainly the last 20 years. But I would argue just in terms of foreign policy, you know, um, foreign policy sure. over the last, you know, hundred years that this has been maybe 80 years, right? That this has really been an issue that Islam becomes the cudgel by which to justify a whole bunch of other kind of foreign policy practices. And I think that hostility translates, it trickles down into how we view Muslim women as well. I mean, we see it, for example, with Ilhan Omar. Tell us about that, please. The Congress, Congressperson Ilhan Omar. Yes, from Minnesota, right? Um, You know, she was a refugee, a Somali refugee, came to this country after having been in a refugee camp. I think she came when she was eight or 10. And there is no good reason (laughs) why she should be treated with hostility on any count. She's, you know, she's um, pretty much, I I think she's probably more liberal than many other Congress folks. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that she wears a hijab has really attracted a lot of anger and hostility and the sense that she couldn't possibly represent the interests of non-Muslims if she's so visibly Muslim. But we don't have that same kind of question when we look at women who present as European or as non-Muslim, right? So you know, um, Barbara Boxer, Diane Feinstein, um, Nancy Pelosi. No one ever, I mean, or very few people, I should say, uh, wonder if they are capable of accommodating the interests of folks who are nothing like them. Mm. But when you see somebody who's kind of visibly other, uh, there tends to be that question. Could they possibly be able to represent me? Yeah, that visibly other there's this uh, oh, the, the the history in America of fear of the other and having to have some other to to hate and fear. It's it's an, an ugly history, and we'll go into that just a little bit. There's there's long been ethnic and or cultural groups which have been openly discriminated against. In the First World War, uh, the Germans. Oh, no, I had to stay away from anything German. Jews from time to time. The French, when they failed to support our 2003 invasion of Iraq, 
Oh, remember that? The French fries? Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> freedom, freedom fries. Freedom fries. I had to look that up. <laughs> Russians in the 1950s, and probably today, they were acts of violence against these immigrant groups, sometimes with federal government support. In in uh, the whole uh, Palmer raids, and you know, in the 1920s, it's been an ugly history there to have, you know, against these these others. They're not real Americans. They're not 100 percent Americans. They can't be hyphenated Americans that even Woodrow Wilson talked about. What about this need to have some dangerous others? And is it the case that being visibly Muslim in the U.S. is a safety issue for Muslim women? So I guess two yeah. questions in there. Okay, so tell me the the first question. What about this need to have some dangerous others? What about that? What, what does that say about our dominant culture? I think it's a really handy strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You know, to have dangerous others, because that gives you a kind of um, defense of plausible deniability, right? <laughs> You'd say, well, you know, we have, and in fact, I don't know if you remember this, but back when the USA Patriot Act was passed um, in October of 2001, six weeks after 9-11, um, Strom Thurmond, actually, of all people, uh, and I think Trent Lott as well, the attorney general um, at the time under the Bush administration, you know, they were being accused of racism and they were like, They're, no, not at all. I mean, we have black Americans who used to be, you know, outside of the polity. Of course, they didn't use the word slavery. Um, and now they're very much a part of the polity. And so, you know, we can't possibly be racist because, see, we've embraced all of these others. But you have now dangerous others. <laughs> and so it becomes a kind of site to unite against a scary bully. Um, even if they're not really bullies or necessarily scary. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, it makes me wonder, we've had a little bit of a gun problem in these United States. Just, <laughs> a, just little, a little one. Just a little bit. Um, I, I wonder of these women wearing hijabs, how scary they are as others. How many of them have done any mass shootings? As far as I can tell, <laughs> there are very few. Although, you know, there was an interesting case of a nuclear scientist who was Pakistani, Afia Siddiqui, in the aftermath of 9-11, who somehow showed up in, like, a few news accounts as having shot up soldiers in Fort Hood. Um, oh, right, Texas. right. It was weird. It was a very weird case um, because she was this tiny, tiny little woman. Huh. And, you know, apparently she like she managed and like she was a scientist. She was not, you know, a soldier or a guard or anything. And she managed to wrest a gun from a soldier who was guarding her. This was the story. Um, and so then they sentenced her to many, many, many years in prison um, and then apparently she showed up on the streets of Pakistan or they, you know, very weird. Anyway, that's a weird story. We could devote a whole story, segment to that. But yeah, other than that, almost no Muslim women yeah. shooting up anybody. Um, but I will say, you know, Fran France Fanon, who is uh -huh. uh, 
a 1950s Martinican philosopher who wrote about the French, about um, who was a big um, defender of Algeria and decolonizing um, the colonies from France. You know, he actually had some interesting essays about the 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 ways in which Muslim women could be quite um, useful in mm-hmm. resistance against France. Yeah. And there's a, a really interesting film by Gilles Pontecorvo, The Battle of Algiers. I was just going to mention that. Oh, <laughs> yes. If Listeners, if you haven't seen The Battle of Algiers, see it. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, kind of, I mean, amazing, amazing, fascinating kind of um, strategic metamorphosis yes. of Algerian Muslim women often into looking like they were kind of, you know, secular French women. Uh-huh. And that was kind of part of the the resistance strategy. But I have to say, I think that's also part of the fear, right? Uh-huh. Like, what are they hiding under their burqas? What are they hiding, you know, um, in under their cloaks? And that is a kind of fear that does get stoked by, you know, by films like that and thoughts like that. In fact, I have a very good friend who about 15 years ago when I was writing um, the, the, one of the papers that became part of this book, um, maybe not 15 years ago, but yeah, about nine years ago or so, uh, you know, she's very progressive, extremely open-minded. And she goes, but how do we know that they're not hiding things under their cloaks? Like, that does make me nervous when they walk around like that. I thought, wow. And this is somebody who, you know, I really respect. Uh, So that fear exists. But I think we also have to find a way to separate our anxieties from objective reality. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes fear is not justified. (laughs) Oftentimes. I think rarely is fear uh, uh, justified that, uh, you know, things that you're afraid of in general, I think, are not as, as scary as you think. For those who may have just tuned in, we're talking about uh, a new book called Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab. It, we're speaking with its author, Falgani A. Sheth. It's about, uh, the, you know, feelings, liberal women uh, and... Uh, Women in America, Muslim women who dress uh, conservatively and the discrimination that happens and the fear. And, of course, the U.S. is currently experiencing a really ugly culture war. There are people like uh, uh, Josh Hawley, U.S. senator, who is pushing what I call toxic masculinity to rule once again. And it's it's collecting supporters, shockingly. But anyway, uh, one of the most obviously divisive issues in America these days, of course, is reproductive rights. I wonder, now this, this, you would know more than I, how white feminist American women would feel if they knew, my understanding is, under the Quran, under Islamic law, there are no explicit prohibitions on a woman's ability to abort a fetus. That Muslim uh, is not as anti-choice as uh, conservative so-called Christians these days. I wonder, is that, A, is that accurate? And B, you know, I I wonder what the attitudes might be. Your thoughts? Well, I'm not an expert on Islam by any means. So I do politics and law. (laughs) And I think about 
um, different kind of, you know, genders. But that is also my understanding is that um, that there is no prohibition um, against abortion in Islam, none whatsoever. So, and, you know, yeah. So what, you know, <laughs> and, and we have this impression that they're, you know, conservative and backwards, whatever, and, you know, and their religion, you know, is so dominant in their lives. Uh, we need to open our eyes a little bit. I, I will tell you also, this is, I find it interesting. My college student daughter was asked in a class if she thought the U.S. should take military action to free up the oppressed women of Afghanistan. What about this? Huh. And, and, and my U.S. senator, who's an old friend of mine, Gene Shaheen, uh, has argued for U.S. going back in and you know this American feminist argument for us to liberate the women of Afghanistan, whether they want it or not. Your thoughts? Wow. I, we're back to that, huh? Yeah, um, well... <laughs> 20 years later. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I have to say there's a really beautiful, simple essay, which you can find probably if you Google it very easily by a professor um, from Columbia, uh, Lila Abu Lagod, uh, who asks the question, do Muslim women really need saving? Right. And, you know, there is this question of a why. What, what prompts us to think right. that they need saving? And have we heard from them? I mean, certainly, I think this is also a case of there's probably not a united position on this, uh-huh. right? I'm sure there are Muslim and Afghan women of different classes, of different educational backgrounds, you know, of different political views, just like we have in the U.S., right? We have plenty of women who are anti-abortion and plenty of women who are pro-choice mm-hmm. or somewhere in between. So we do have a lot of differing opinions, but I would say in this case, we really need to take our lead from um, the Afghan women themselves and say, what do you need? Right. How can we, if, how can we be of use if that's how we want to prioritize? And I would also argue, why are we not prioritizing that here? <laughs> why are we not actually prioritizing helping uh, liberate women here when we have a court that is determined to oppress women left and right. I mean, I have to say, I think the Dobbs versus Jackson case, but also yes. a number of other cases really exemplify a continuing theme from my book, which is that re- politics gets played out on the bodies of women. Mm. Cultural that- politics, religious politics, that that's what we see. We even see it, you know, in the case of um, natural hair and right. black men and women, right? Right. Uh, that um, natural hair for a long, long time has been prohibited. And this is actually what I show in, a, in one of um, in my book a little bit, where I, I point to all the dress codes that have always been, you know, in different kinds of professional environments. That and it doesn't. And I don't mean corporate professional. I'm talking about you know, safari parks and amusement parks and clothing stores that prohibited the natural hair. I mean, it's really only been over the last three or four years and the passage of the Crown Act was passed last year, um, which is about, you know, uh, prohibiting discrimination against black uh, employees uh, for their, you know, for wearing natural hair. Mm. 
that we've had that. But the military actually was the first to recognize this a few years back, and they started very slowly pulling back all restrictions against natural hair. So the military recognized that if they wanted, um, if they wanted uh, labor, if mm-hmm. you will, in their, in their, you know, among their troops, that they needed to be much more open and flexible. So they kind of got it. But this has always been the case. I mean, the attempt to kind of discipline, shape, mold women is doesn't begin or end with Muslim women. I mean, it's yeah, always sure. been here. It's often been leveled against African-American men and women. Um, and mm-hmm. it plays out on our bodies. That's the most convenient place. I mean, Amelia Bloomer, I don't know if you recognize her, but in the 1920s, she was the one who popularized bloomers to be able to wear, right, those kind of frilly pants. Oh, my. To be able to, like, have the freedom to ride a bicycle in order to get some physical exercise and to be healthy. I mean, this has very much been a part of U.S. culture. Um, You know, those kinds of politics play out. uh, Prohibitions against women smoking. Right. Right. Now, obviously, we can debate the merits of that in one way or another. But I would argue that it's not so much of concern about women's health in that case as it was about, <laughs> right, about whether or not they uh, could be good ladies, as it were, if they were smoking. Um, you know, back in 2001, no, yeah, I think it was even, it was 90, 1991, there was a big case, PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, big accounting firm, <clears throat> which I think has broken up a lot since then had were sued for discrimination by a woman who was not promoted even though she had fulfilled all of their criteria and brought in a lot of business because oh. they determined that she wasn't feminine enough like that was a thing and so they had actually recommended that she go back up for promotion um the following year but to start wearing skirts and heels. i'm laughing but it's like you got to be kidding me. Not feminine enough? I mean, who sets these standards for what's feminine and even masculine for that matter? There's a huge spectrum, really. And uh, that just, you know, just you sort of mentioned that and, and uh, what's feminine enough. It, it just uh, it, it is amazing. I, and I do find it's interesting what you talked about the military. And I think about the military and professional football and professional baseball. You know, it used to be. Gosh, if you didn't have your haircut right, you would not be on the field. And this is just men. And now they realize, hey, you know what? If we want guys to be out here playing the game, we need to let them do what they want to do and look like what they want to look like. But yet for women, oh, my goodness, it's, it's still a ways to go. That's for sure. And again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a key aspect of freedom. And that is uh, being able to have your cultural identity. Our guest today is Falgany Sheth, and she's got a new book out published by Oxford Press, Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab. And time goes on. You know, 9-11 is is far behind us. Obviously, that uh, people simplified and were scared very much of anything Muslim, and there were attacks, violence. Muslim women are less and less rare in 21st century America. More young American women, I think, are no longer shocked at seeing their sisters in traditional Muslim dress. 
classmates, fellow workers, neighbors. Talk about the evolution away from acceptance of America's old role as moral gatekeeper of liberal values. Why is it that political and cultural change uh, is so important for what we're talking about? And talk about how you see that evolution going. I can feel it a little bit. It's never as quick as we'd like, but but what's your sense of how younger women, I mean, they're, the idea of racism and you know being anti-gay, that's just out the window with the younger generation. Thank goodness. What, what do you see? I, th- I totally agree with you. I was thinking about this, you know, as the book was coming out. I mean, because I do think that the younger generation, this is just not an issue, yeah. right? They're much more open and accepting of, you know, their classmates who are different. And I think, frankly, they're the ones who are really ushering in and pushing us to change correctly. So um, you mentioned Josh Hawley. Yeah. Uh, and his toxic masculinity. And we saw that in that kind of widely publicized exchange between him and um, Berkeley law prof, Kiara Bridges, about what, right, what constitutes woman. Um, and she was making the case that we can't really commit to this very, very narrow category of women as being, you know, only and exclusively to like those who were born cis women but you have a lot of women who who or men who can who have the capacity to bear children and i think you know these are weird and new ideas for much the older generation but i think it's the young folks who are really going to push us there and i think they have a very good point i mean that these are not categories that work and you know and i think they're the ones who are going to try to really who are hopefully going to get us to change our minds about a lot of this Boy, I do have a lot of hope in this younger generation, but then again, my parents had hope in my generation, and yeah, well. <laughs> well, <laughs> what what about? We can only do what we can do. <laughs> that's true, and we can't. We are not powerless. They want us to believe we're powerless, but my goodness, we are not powerless. That acceptance of powerlessness just bothers me very much because we are not powerless. We, you know, there's a lot of us, and when I grew up, it, it, being taught in schools that history was progress. It was a straight line. Things always got better. What about the notion of progress and modernity? How has the idea of modern affected attitude toward Muslim women in traditional garb? I mean, you got to be modern, you know, you got to have the modern appliances, whatever. What, What about this notion of progress and modernity? And if you're not buying into that, you're left behind. Yeah, it's so interesting that you asked that question. Um, I mean, I, I'm my education is actually as a philosopher. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about history and how we always think of history as moving towards a better place, right? Right. right. But somehow, you know, yeah, it's all ending in a good place, or that's yeah. where it's supposed to end. We're supposed to end up much more progressive than we started. I don't think that's true. Right. Um, you know, I do think that that is a hope, but. Obviously, yeah. I just don't think we're, I don't think our our history bears it out, right? We have a lot of violence, and it's not necessarily the case that we have less violence today than we did a hundred years ago, or even two hundred years ago, or even three hundred years ago. We just have more sophisticated forms of it. Um, I mean, I think the way that modernity plays out in the case of the Muslim women's dress, I mean, it's quite fascinating because 
capitalism is a pretty powerful force. And so there, you know, there are now all kinds of haute couture design companies that have all kinds of really uh, cutting edge fashion for Muslim women who wear different kinds of um, uh, scarves and hijabs and niqabs and burqas, different colors, cutting edge stuff. You know, and that's the other thing. It's like, you know, we're so, uh, from the outside, we're so obsessed with the thing that we forget that there's a lot of variations that, for example, Muslim women in Indonesia tend to, you know, wear the hijab very differently uh-huh. than women in Saudi or in Jordan or in Egypt. There's so many different variants because these are also ways of communicating fashion personal preferences in the same way that we do with the kinds of clothes that we wear in the U.S. even when we're not Muslim. Um, And so it's fascinating (laughs) that while, you know, some of us are really kind of behind in the sense that we object to women wearing these things um, in other parts of the world, people are kind of, they're capitalizing on it and really turning it into a full-time fashion industry. They have been for yeah. 10, 15 years in the same way that saris are very kind of glam and haute couture. Uh, <laughs> well, where there's money to be made, it will be made. And it's, it's, it's I you know, find it interesting when people talk about the black community or the Hispanic community, there isn't one community. There's a huge variation just as there is in the white. I mean, come on, people. You know, you can't just... And and wearing the hijab, I suppose, can have the effect of simplifying it and reducing it and, and making it uh, appear to be uh, simple. But it ain't so simple. It rarely is. Yeah, I think there's as many different opinions about this as there are groups and, you know, little factions and different, yeah, you know, different kinds of uh, collaborations. I wanted to ask about one particular case. I'm not even sure what EEOC stands for. EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch was a rare legal win for Muslim women fighting the right for the right to wear religious garb at work. How has that case impacted the lives of Muslim women in the workplace since? And tell us about, you think, how that will continue to have an effect. You know, it's an interesting thing. So EEOC stands for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And this was a commission that was instituted after the Civil Rights Act in order to help um, sift and sort uh, cases that had a lot of substance and that they thought could actually, you know, be brought to the courts uh, to challenge employment discrimination because there were so many cases that were being filed. Mm. So the EEOC actually was a filter for that. So Uh technically, in order to really, you know, uh, in order to have your case heard, the EEOC has to recognize it as, as worthy of pursuing. And so it did in the case of EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch. And the plaintiff in this particular case um, was Samantha Alauf, who was a young woman. I believe she was out in California and she had interviewed. She wore a headscarf and she was interviewing um, to you know, get a job as a sales clerk at Abercrombie and Fitch. And she uh-huh. did very well. Um, you know, she on all of their tests and questions and interviews. And then she asked if her wearing a hijab was going to be an issue. And the person who was interviewing her said she wasn't sure, but she would check. And that led them to decide to not 
hire her. And yeah. so she fought too. Yeah. The and very, just the, the fact that she was wearing one but, and she brought it up. She goes, is this going to be an issue? Cause I can adjust it. I can wear it in different ways. And so that came up through the courts and it was hailed as this major victory for um, Muslim women. It was, it was hailed all around the country and it was actually used as a kind of point of castigation, not about discrimination, but about the kind of obsessive tendencies of, I believe, I'm forgetting his first name, but he was like Mark Jeffries, who was the CEO of Abercrombie and Fitch, who was extremely particular about every aspect of the company, um, from dress to who got hired to how short they kept their fingernails to how long they kept their hair, both men and women. And so he was really the, the lightning rod of criticism in this case as having been discriminatory. But honestly, that's, you know, that's where a lot of the rest of my book goes is to say, actually, we have a history of dress codes. We have a history of discrimination uh -huh. against what men and women wear. I think in that that case was so singular. And so that's also part of what prompted me to write this book is to say, look, this is it's it's significant, but it's not that significant, because while this case made it all the way up to the courts, there are hundreds of cases very similar that never did that either uh -huh. got settled or where the courts ruled against the plaintiffs who were suing for discrimination. And we have to keep that in mind that for, for this case, there's literally hundreds that, that were not ruled um, in favor of Muslim women. And keeping things invisible out of the public eye uh, can suit the uh, power structure quite well, as we know. What can feminists and proponents of inclusivity do to raise awareness of the systemic disparagement and dismissal of Muslim women who wear uh, hijab or niqab? And I think it's really important to try to find a way to connect to Muslim communities near you uh -huh. um, and to, to reach out to see what kind of opportunities there might be for collaboration or conversation. But it shouldn't be about kind of um, fact-finding or having them be emissaries of Islam. More, you mm. know, how can, how can we collaborate with you? How can we, you know, engage with you in a way that allows you to, or, you know, allows us all to kind of be better integrated into the community and with each other. I think that is a, a, a fairly easy approach that doesn't require huge, enormous, almost impossible changes. Mm. Yep, we can do it. We can do it. The book is titled Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, published by Oxford Press. And it's been my pleasure to speak with its author, Falgany A. Sheth. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, shedding light into this area that's not looked at very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Bert. And I'm going to end the show with a new song from Mona Haydar called Wrap My Hijab. It's about this very issue. Don't wrap my hijab, wrap my hijab, wrap my hijab, wrap, wrap my hijab, keep swagging my hijab.
Even if you hate it, I still rap. 